Good morning, everybody. We are going to finish Revelation 8 today. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. Last week, recapping very briefly, we talked about the chronology of the trumpet judgments. We talked about how the trumpet judgments are in the first half of the tribulation, which indicates that God's wrath is being poured out during that time. So since we are promised in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we will not suffer the wrath of God, we will not be here during that time of the tribulation. And we won't be here for the second part either. So that makes the pre-trib view the most reasonable one biblically. So that's what we talked about last week. This week, we're going to look at the spiritual application of these trumpet judgments. So it's always important before you apply the text, you properly understand it in context. That's what we were doing last week. This week, we're going to look at how some of these things pertain to us in broader ways. Because we won't be here during this time. So how do we take something that's not written directly to us in a way? How do we take that and apply it to our circumstances? So verse number one, when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Now, this silence comes right before the judgment of the trumpets. This is God pouring out his wrath in a more obvious way than he had before. So all the seal judgments, people could probably try to explain those ecological disasters, uh, you know, there being pestilence, you know, there being famine, that they could explain some of that away perhaps and say, oh, this isn't God. However, with the sixth seal, that completely dispels the myth that this is something natural. This is God speaking from heaven. And following the sixth seal, okay, and the opening of the seventh, as we have here in verse one, we have the segue, if you will, into the more obvious judgments of the tribulation. And so before God begins to pour out his wrath in that more manifest way, there's quiet and silence in heaven. And so for your notes, if you have notes, uh, there might be some laying around the room. Uh, you might have from last week, but for the notes, it is spiritual wisdom to quietly affirm the justice of divine judgment and, and having conversations with people about this. There are really two kinds of people. There are the people who loudly argue against divine judgment. And often you have even people who claim to be Christians coming from a Christian background, strongly arguing against it, trying to downplay it. Today you have lots of variants of this. You have people who would say, all right, well, hell is temporary. You have people who say, well, hell isn't eternal. It's more like God sends you there and you're annihilated. That's called the conditional immortality view. So only believers will live forever. Unbelievers will be extinguished. Some think it's immediate. Some people will think it's um, in relation to what sins you've committed. So you might be there longer before you're wiped out. There are all kinds of views like that. Some people deny hell altogether. Some people say, well, hell is eternal, but it's not really a conscience torment. Um, uh, they, they say it's unconscious in some way. So there are all these ways of trying to take away from divine judgment. Now, a believer who truly understands divine judgment does not delight in it. When I argue in favor of the biblical view, I'm not doing so with uh, like this sense of happiness. I don't have any happiness when I talk about eternal judgment. In fact, I would rather hell not exist. There's not a single Christian alive that wouldn't say, man, I wish hell didn't exist. Uh, but it does. And so as believers to be faithful to God's word, we should stand in the gap today as people are compromising. Um, and when we do so, 
Uh, we, in those moments of defending divine judgment, need to be careful that we don't come across in a more self-righteous manner, uh, as some people do. Um, I found that some people, when they defend hell, it's like they defend it as if they almost like it. They, they want it to be bad, you know? And they, for some reason, relish the thought of the people that they're arguing with going there. I've been on Facebook and seen some people talk about, you know, all oh, these people are going to burn and all that. And I'm like, oh, gosh. And it makes me nervous because I'm like, God, I pray for these people. Okay, I don't... That's what I'm saying. So the way we approach the subject of hell and divine judgment is with silence. Okay. And when I mean silence, I'm not saying don't defend the word of God. I'm saying we affirm what God says and we stop right there. We stop right there. We were told once, don't ever talk to someone about hell unless you have tears in your eyes. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. When I talk about it, I, I almost, I don't like bringing it up. When I bring it up, it is always an uncomfortable subject for me. I tell that to my students. I say, guys, you'll notice that sometimes, you know, I, I may not bring it up if there's not, you know, something in the text that specifically deals with it. Uh, but at the same time, I don't avoid those texts. I mean, I'm, I'm very upfront about what scripture teaches. But I, I think that the mouth needs to be stopped in a way when we talk about it. We need to be very humble whenever we defend hell. It's not as if. You're going there because you're more sinful than I am. When we talk about it, we simply say, this is God's judgment. I deserve to go there too. I'm just thankful that I'm not. Praise God. Let's move on to more happy things to talk about. So for Christians, we should know what scripture teaches, not downplay it, and not be afraid to defend it. But at the same time, as Charles Spurgeon once said, the fires of hell have been put out for the believer. And so I don't like to dwell upon it. And that's why fire and brimstone preaching, in a sense, it seems a little out of place. Sometimes preachers will get up there and it's like, again, they delight in talking about it. I don't delight in talking about it. And I think that sometimes people have, as I've heard it said, a medieval view of hell. And uh, they depict it in ways that aren't biblical. The Bible's remarkably, um, what, what would you say, reserved in its description of hell. It, it really doesn't go into a lot of detail. It calls it outer darkness. It calls it a place of fire. It calls it a place of conscious torment. There are chains there. It's a prison. It's an abyss. But how all these things work together, how the imagery works together, we still can't really understand how it all goes together. We should simply say, this is what the Bible says. And I am silent in the face of a God who is righteous. And I'm thankful that he has paid for my sin. And I will not point the finger at God and say, God, you are wrong in creating a place called hell and you are wrong in passing sentence on sinners who have refused to receive your son. I'm not going to point the finger at God. I'm going to be silent before God. And so that's something I think the Holy spirit works in people. We become silent when the law is exposed to us. Like Paul said, he says the law stops every mouth. When we see what the law is, how righteous God is, and we see how we fall short. Whenever we see hell, we're, we're scared of it because we know that we deserve it. And we go to God and we receive the grace and the comfort that he wants us to have. He doesn't want us to live with that fear as Christians. Right. So Christians, if you're listening to this, you should have assurance of salvation, which means you don't fear hell anymore. And if you fear hell for anybody, it should be for those who don't know about Jesus. And so the first point is it is spiritual wisdom to quietly affirm the justice of divine judgment. I think sometimes uh, when you get in debates with people, and I was talking with Nana about this earlier, you cannot logically bring someone to believe in hell, I think. 
Um, I think that it's one of those things that because we're sinners, because it is a, a spiritual thing, uh, sin is, and it goes so deep, the Holy Spirit has to cut people deep. And I've had debates with people and I can tell, I could give you a logical argument. And there are logical arguments. I could give it to you. But it's like there's nothing that changes in their mind. Nothing that changes in their eyes when they're looking at you. They've got a spiritual condition. And all I can do is say, look, Jesus loves you. In fact, I found that I have, this is really the Holy Spirit, not me, but the Holy Spirit has cut deeper when I've looked at someone in the eye and said, look, Jesus loves you. And he doesn't want you to suffer eternally. He died on the cross, took that penalty himself so you could be free of it. When I'm talking to people, and I look them straight in the eye when I say it. I feel like that moves people more than a dry, logical argument that says, you know, A, if A, then B, then C, you know, that sort of argument. I don't think it really cuts as deep as some people think it does. When people say, oh, prove it to me logically. I don't really think you want logic. I, I don't think that's what you want. Uh, I think you want me to tell you what you want to hear. And I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you the bad news and then I'm going to follow it up with the best news ever. And so that's what we should do whenever we're approaching this subject. Um, let's look at verse two. I saw the seven angels which stood before God and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. So this is the pattern of the tabernacle in heaven. This is the original uh, and the one on earth was built after this. So what we have is an angel sort of like a priest going and getting uh, coals from the bronze altar and then moving further, okay, closer to the most holy place. And before God's presence, there is another altar, the altar of incense. And he puts the incense and the coals there. And as he burns it, the smoke comes up and it distinguishes that smoke from the prayers of the saints. I think we will hear these prayers in heaven. I think we'll hear them audibly. I think that God has ways of doing things supernaturally. He has a way of saving these things up. If we have a way of recording things, he has a way of doing it too. And I think we're going to hear these prayers. I think even since this is describing us in heaven, we'll be there at this point as believers. Our prayers, perhaps, we will maybe even hear our prayers. Prayers that we've forgotten. I mean, how many times have y'all prayed to God and you don't remember? Okay, keeping a prayer journal is a way to remember that. But God keeps track of it all even if we forget. All prayers from all saints, from all of history, that anticipated the kingdom. How many times have y'all prayed for the kingdom to come? Not that you really relish judgment. You wanted judgment to happen, but you wanted the kingdom to come. And you knew judgment had to happen first. And you simply said, God, come now. I want you to come now. Please, Lord, Maranatha. How many times have we prayed that in one form or another? All those prayers are going up now. And they're going into God's presence. It says in verse four, they ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. That access that we have is something that we can personally exult in. And so... For a believer who's understood judgment, we've understood the reality of hell. We've understood the reality of Christ's atonement for us. We can exult in this in a way no one else can. And that's the second point. It is transcendent joy. When I say transcendent, it's heavenly revealed. It's something that God reveals to us spiritually, that kind of joy, to personally exult in the coming kingdom. Can you personally exult in it? Have you experienced it yourself? Uh, that's what I like to often say to people. When I'm sharing the gospel, you know, have you personally understood the joy of knowing that you're redeemed? And even if they've never heard of this text, uh, that concept is being presented here for us, that our prayers have access to the Holy of Holies by virtue of Christ 
and what he's done. He's ultimately the high priest who takes our prayers, who takes our our souls into heaven, into the holy of holies. And so it is transcendent joy to exult personally in the coming kingdom. Uh, the reason I use the word transcendent again is because this is something the Holy Spirit has to reveal to you. I really believe in apologetics, guys. If you've listened to this podcast, we talk about Bible translation issues. We talk about textual difficulties. Uh, we've talked about creation. We've talked about Bible prophecy. Uh, I do believe that the word of God is factual. I don't think it's one big metaphor, okay, where everything's just spiritualized and people can just pick and choose, you know, how to interpret it their way. I do think that, you know, God's word is based on fact. However, I think that as I've grown older in my faith, as I've matured a little bit, um, I've seen that facts by themselves will never be enough to persuade somebody. And if you want somebody to know the joy that you have as a believer, if you want them to come to faith themselves, then you have to pray for these people and you have to do it often. Um, I think that if you pray for somebody, that is probably more effective than sitting them down and having a debate with them. I think that sharing the gospel with somebody, let's say a simple gospel presentation. I know my daughter Scotty right here. She could give a simple gospel presentation to somebody. She doesn't know all the apologetics, but she could tell someone how to get saved. Doing that and then praying for that person often is more powerful than sitting down in a formal setting and having a debate. I really do believe that. So apologetics has a place. I think especially it helps believers that are struggling with their doubts. Okay. Cindy Ramirez always used to say, they don't know what you, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. Yes. They don't care what you know until they know that you care. Absolutely. And I think that the Holy Spirit has a way of communicating that in a way that we can't. All we got to do is be faithful vessels, faithful instruments. Uh, but I do believe that if we're wanting people to understand us from a logical perspective, they can't. They can't because it's not a logical experience when you get saved. It's a supernatural one. Okay, it's where the Holy Spirit comes and changes us. And so if we want people to personally experience that, um, we have to challenge them with the gospel. We have to let them know that we care, that we love them. And apologetics, again, it has a role in all that. If they have questions, if they're honestly seeking, I found that apologetics is wonderful when people are honestly seeking. Okay, if people are already willing to listen to what you have to say. But uh, again, this takes a lot of the burden off of us in a way. Again, applying this text to our conversations with the lost uh, there is a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and, and he's our comforter. He's personal, but as he's personal with us, he's personal with the lost too, and, and drawing them gently to himself, not forcing them, but drawing them gently to himself. And so as we um, partner with the Holy Spirit in that ministry through prayer and by faithfully sharing the gospel, uh, people can partake of this joy themselves. All right, now let's move on to verse five. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels, which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The next point, the third point is it is liberating solace. I'll explain why I use that word in a moment. It is liberating solace to stand securely above God's vengeance. Where will we be when this happens? We will not be on earth where the censor is cast. We will be above it all. Isn't that such an awesome thought? That we will be above it all. And we'll be able to look down upon it. I mean, how many times have we 
seen somebody else suffering and we either say it out loud or we say it to ourselves, I'm really glad that that's not me. Right. We're all going to be really, really glad, especially at this time when we're in heaven and we see the angel cast that down, knowing what is to follow. And again, all these judgments that we see, I know that this stuff doesn't directly pertain to the topic of hell because we've been talking about it. But again, all judgment, all judgment foreshadows that final and worst judgment of all. And that's a judgment that's talked about often in the book of Revelation. Probably talks more about the lake of fire. Talks more about hell than any other book. So all of these judgments on earth are a taste, a foretaste to the lost of worse to come if they don't repent. And God is doing this mercifully to lead them to himself. But knowing that we will be able to stand securely above that gives us solace. Solace is a word, you know, which, which is related to solitude. To me, it, it gives me a, a, a deeper sense of peace. When I was in high school, I read this book, a fantasy book, a lot like Lord of the Rings. And there's this village in the story and it's called Solace. And Solace to me um, is such a cool concept. It's a, a forest. To me, there's nothing more peaceful than a forest. Um, and above, high above in the trees, they have their village built. So it, it is a village built high up in the trees. Like the dudes in Star Wars. Yeah, I was about to say, like, yeah, like the Ewoks, okay? It's built above in the trees. Now, I know for those of y'all who are listening, you're like, fantasy, oh, goodness, he went there in a sermon. Yeah, I think that it's a good illustration because they do know me by now. It, to me, it's a really awesome symbol of peace. Because you're above it all. Everything's down below. All the predators, chaos. all the dangers of the forest, all the chaos is down below. Except and you're snakes. above. Huh? Say, except the snakes. They can climb trees. Except the snakes. They can climb trees. Christy has to remind me of that. Okay. But uh, to be in heaven to me is like being above all the chaos. And uh, to me, that gives me a deep sense of peace. It's a homey sense of peace. You know, um, I think that we all as human beings, we're looking for a home. Uh, we're looking for that that consolation, that comfort. And when I read this text, I'm reminded that we have one eternally where God is, whether, you know, we're in heaven in the tribulation or whether, you know, he brings down the new Jerusalem on earth, wherever we are, we are always going to be eternally secure and above judgment, standing securely above God's vengeance because God's vengeance on our behalf has been satisfied, been satisfied by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now verse seven, it says the first angel sounded and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. And they were cast upon the earth and the third part of trees was burnt up and all green grass was burnt up. Now we talked about the specifics of these last week, but again, I want to, to show how ironic these judgments are. Why does God do these judgments? Now, again, we don't know all the details. There's probably a lot more that I don't know. I know there is, but to me, when I read this, I think of the coolness of man toward God answered by hail. Hail, I th hail is you know, is ice. Okay, it's cold. I think of the coolness that that hard-hearted coolness of mankind towards God. God will answer it with hail. The wrath of man towards each other. The wrath of man towards God, towards the truth Himself, will be answered with fire. Wrath and fire go often hand in hand in Scripture. Coolness of man will be answered by the coolness of God. The fiery wrath of man towards God will be answered by His wrath. And finally, those who have caused so much death. Think about all the death that humans have caused. And I'm not just talking about personal violence. Yes, that too. But think about our sin itself has broken creation. I think of animal kinds. I think of animals dying. And it does bring me sorrow. 
not as much as the dying of a human because humans are made in God's image. But when I see animal death, it does, you know, give me a, a twinge of sorrow in my heart. And I think about all the death that we have caused because of our sin and our rebellion against God. Those who have caused so much death will have blood literally rain down upon them. I mean, imagine during this time when Christians are being killed for their faith. As they are shedding the blood of believers, God will cause blood to fall down from heaven so that they choke on it. I mean, so you see the irony of these things. God, I think, while there's a literal meaning to all of this, it's all going to happen just as described, I feel like God chose it carefully to represent things. Uh, Verses 8 and 9, The second angel sounded, and there was a great mountain burning with fire and was cast into the sea. And the third part of the sea became blood, and the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. We have, of course, man's commerce affected by this, a fiery mountain destroying all these ships, okay? All the trade that man has built up, this is no doubt the trade of Babylon the Great, it's going to be drastically affected by this. This is just, again, a taste of the further destruction of Babylon that will come later in the tribulation. But if you're looking again at your notes... The mountain of man's pride, the mountain of man's pride will be answered by a mountain of fire to destroy their commerce and flood their coastal cities and bring them low. And Jeremiah talks about Babylon as a burning mountain, which will burn itself out. So man builds a mountain. They build a Babel. They build a tower to themselves. They worship themselves. They make a name for themselves. God says, I'm going to cast down your mountain by actually casting a mountain upon your ships. I'm going to cast a burning mountain upon your ships. And to me, it's a very poignant picture. Yeah, I I think it's a meteor. It's a poignant picture of this is what God does to those who exalt themselves against him. In the story of the Tower of Babel, he confused their languages. Pretty tame, pretty mild. God was being patient. Okay, he separates mankind. We know, of course, they're going to move back together. Okay, isolates them for thousands of years until now. Guess what? Globalism. We're seeing Babel reemerge. Okay. We're not dissociated from each other anymore. I mean, we're able to communicate now. We're able to do commerce now. We're coming together. And instead of, of course, giving glory to God, just like the old Babel, just like the new Babel, it's going to be arrogance against God. And God's going to rain down fire, a fiery mountain upon them. Uh, The next point mankind has turned bitter towards the water of life. And so they will find their own waters poisoned. In verses 10 through 11, the third angel sounded and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood and many died of the waters because they were made bitter. It, to me, it's such a crazy thing that people are bitter towards Christianity. Christianity to me has shaped the world. Of course, there are perversions of it. There are cults, you know. But true Christianity has changed the world in every single imaginable good way. Schools, humanitarian relief, civilization, justice, equality, morality, all of it. All these values that we hold dear that even the West, even if they spit in the face of Christ and Christianity, they still love the values. And there are even atheist philosophers to point this out. One guy, he's actually a philosopher. Sorry, he's a historian. I forget his name. But I was watching his interview and he wrote a book on Christianity, Shaping History. And though he's not a Christian himself, he says, you should think twice before you reject Christianity because it is upon Christianity that all the values that we love so much, the treatment of women, okay, the the, the treatment of marginalized groups, 
that is straight from Christianity. He said, go back to the Roman Empire. Okay, look at how they treated marginalized groups. And then look at how Christians took them in. They treated women with value. They took care of the babies that were abandoned in the fields because of, you know, deformities and diseases that they had. They took in. They did not exclude. Those values that we love come straight from the gospel. And so even though he doesn't believe it, I'm hoping that God's working on his heart. Maybe he will, but he was saying people are rejecting Christianity, but they don't realize that the values that they hold dear are based on Christianity. They don't understand that inconsistency. And so that's why we have so much chaos today in our country. But, uh, Mankind is torn bitter towards the water of life and all the benefits that the gospel provides to society and us individually, of course. And so they're going to find their own waters to be poisonous. They've taken God for granted. And so even that common blessing of clean water will be removed away from them. Verse 12 says, And the fourth angel sounded in, the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, the third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. We talked about last week how this might happen, but in a time dominated by pagan humanism, God will reveal mankind's enlightened thinking. Okay, They think that they're thinking in an enlightened manner. He will reveal that thinking as the darkness that it truly is. I think that when the tribulation begins, they're going to be thinking, oh, we're in a new age. You know, new age people have already been talking about, you know, the, the dawn of Aquarius. It reminds me of that song from the 70s. Uh, the age of Aquarius and people who are in that movement, they look forward to big change. I think that we're going to see lots of supernatural deception in the tribulation. And I think that's going to coincide right along with mankind growing together. They're going to present, you know, mankind holding hands, creating a one world order, uh, a one world religion, all of that. They're going to describe as progress and enlightenment just as today, um, you know, in my mind, backwards liberal thinking, they call it progress. They call themselves progressives. And that progress, that enlightened thinking that they, they claim it is, God's going to reveal it to be darkness. He's going to darken the whole world. And so they're going to think we're living in an age of light. We're living in an age of Lucifer because they will be worshiping him. And Lucifer means light bearer. Okay, when they think Lucifer is giving them light, God's going to say, this is all dark. And he's going to reveal that truth in a powerful way by literally darkening the earth and uh, keeping the sun and the moon and the stars from shining at their full strength. In verse number 13, last verse this morning, and I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. All temporal judgment, temporal judgments, earthly judgment, all temporal judgment suggests that worse is to come. And so worse is to come, but for a believer who has received Jesus Christ as their savior, we are saved not only from this wrath that's described as taking place on earth in the tribulation, but we are also saved from that final wrath to come in the lake of fire and praise Lord Jesus for doing that for me. And, and as today, you know, we think about, you know, one of our members of our group, Miss Edna, who uh, recently passed to go on to be with the Lord. Uh, it just reminds me of the same joy that we all have to look forward to that. I know God's got stuff for us to do. She lived a full life here on earth. He's got full lives for us to live for his glory, to do ministry, to reach the lost. But we all look forward to that homecoming ceremony when we stand before the Lord finally face to face. 
And so hopefully you value that. And if you do share it with people who don't have the same assurance, at least not yet. And so God bless you. We hope that you have a wonderful day and a wonderful 4th of July.